Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am Bernard Beitman, MD, a psychiatrist. I study the mind and brain in its physical and cultural contexts. Meaningful coincidences like synchronicity and serendipity provide clues to how our minds and our brains connect deeply to our bodies, other people, nature, and our environment, the web of our interactions. Meaningful coincidences occur in all aspects of life. Just need to expect them, look around for them, they're there. You can pre-order my new book, Meaningful Coincidences, due out in September. I just sent in the final, final edits to the editor and the company. I'm so glad for that. But you can, if you're interested in, in it, you can, uh, you can order it before it comes out. Uh, the links will be below uh, our video. So um, story I'm gonna tell now is called uh, The Coincidence Joker. Uh, I heard a joke, a guy keeps, the joke was a guy keeps talking and talking and talking about himself. The listener starts looking a little bored. The talker pauses saying, hey, I've been talking a lot about myself. Uh, I think it's time to stop. So he waits. And then he says, what do you think of me? Well, a few weeks later, I'm walking along the shores of Lake Washington in Seattle with my friend Glenn. We stop. He looks at me and continues talking about himself. He's been talking about himself for quite a while. I feel boredom and irritation spreading through me. He seems to notice nice of him. He pauses. Then he says, I've been talking a lot about myself. What do you think of me? So in both the stories stayed about the guy who was talking, nothing about the person who was listening. So I'm saying, what that joke again, this time in real life, I laughed inside myself, but who's the joker here? The joke was instructional to me, since it raises an ongoing question for many human relationships, a question that should be around for most of us, at least sometimes, what do you think I think of you? What do you think I think of you? Well, I think we have a wonderful guest here today on the show. She's amazing, really. Dr. Yvonne Kaysen, MD, is a founder and the president of Spiritual Awakening International. Yeah, she's had five near-death experiences. Five of them. She's an author, an in-demand speaker, and you'll see why, and a media resource. She is a person who first coined the phrase spiritually transformative experiences, S-T-E, spiritually transformative experiences, and has written extensively about STEs in her last three books, her most recent called Touched by Light. She's a renowned expert on Kundalini awakenings, near-death experiences, and of course, spiritually transformative experiences. She's a retired MD psychotherapist, which in Canada means she's like a psychiatrist. She's pretty much gone through the same thing as a primary care psychiatrist. She was a family physician, previously on the faculty at the University of Toronto. 40 years she's had of researching STEs and counseling STE experiencers. She was the first Canadian medical doctor to specialize her practice in 1990 in the counseling and research of persons having diverse types of spiritually transformative experiences. 
1990, she was co-founder of the Kundalini Research Network and became chair of the Kundalini Research Network Research Project. In 2000, she was co-founder of the Spirituality and Healthcare Network. Dr. Kaysen has been recognized for her groundbreaking work as, as an honoree of the Spiritual Awakening International Circle of Honor. Yvonne, it's a pleasure to get to know you as we did at the beginning and so glad that you were able to make it to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. Now, we talked before we got going here with uh, your medevac story, and uh, I know you've told it a bunch of times, and you've told it very well, but there's a part in there that I want to get to that, that there's a rescue thing that happened in the middle of it that was filled with coincidences, but let's lead up to the coincidences beginning before the medevac thing even began, took off to say, and then also how our heroine got rescued in this one. <laughs> Great. I'd love to tell the story. So uh, I just want to clarify one point for your listeners. The name of the organization that I'm president of is called Spiritual Awakenings International with an S. If you forget the S, you might have trouble finding it. So Spiritual Awakenings International with an S after awakenings. Anyway, uh, yes, this a medevac plane crash and near-death experience happened to me in 1979 when I was a medical resident at the University of Toronto. I was completing my residency and I was assigned uh, against my will, <laughs> which that might be a quite, uh, meaningful coincidence right there that some bloop in the schedule, I ended up being sent somewhere I didn't want to be, but there I was in Northern Ontario in the middle of winter in a very small remote community called Sioux Lookout that was servicing um, native Indian communities that lived very remote, remote parts of Northern Ontario. And on this particular day, which was March 27th, 1979, my supervising physician assigned me to accompany a patient on a medevac. And um, because we were just at a tiny little community hospital and she had, was very ill with measles, meningitis, and she needed to go into an ICU. So a plane was gonna fly us uh, to Winnipeg, which was the closest uh, large community that had ICU facilities that could accept her. And back then um, we didn't have uh, helicopters uh, for medevacs. This was a small, a twin engine airplane called a Piper Aztec. And it was a tiny little thing. Um, the plane was loaded. There was the pilot and the co-pilot seat. There was no co-pilot, co co just the pilot. They removed the, the seat behind the pilot. And that's where they placed the stretcher with the patient on it. And then with that went right to the back of the plane. There was like a little bench seat at the back of the plane. That was the full plane. That's how long the plane was. And on the co-pilot side, I was sitting in the seat behind the co-pilot. The seat behind me was the nurse. And then again, the plane was full. So that was the size of the plane we were in. Now, we flew off. Um, the patient was intubated. So she had an airway into um, uh, her lungs. And there was this bag called an Ambu bag that I had to be compressing to keep her breathing. She was unconscious and she had two IVs going. So the nurse was tending on the IVs. So my focus was very much on tending the patient. But Interestingly enough, there was a coincidence, a meaningful coincidence that happened when I was in the doctor's lounge getting ready to go on the plane. Uh, at that time, I was quite young. I was in my 20s. I was extremely weight conscious and I never ate things like cookies or sweets or pastries. And there in the doctor's lounge was a plate of cookies that doctors could snack on, you know, between patients or whatever. And I remember having this clear thought come in my mind. I better eat a cookie because I'm going to need the energy later. And it was one of those thoughts where you go, where, where, where did that thought come from? You know? So I was like, it was really strong and really clear. So I think that was the first meaningful coincidence is like I reached in and I actually ate a couple of these cookies, which is really, really out of character for how I was sort of obsessively weight conscious at that point in my life. I was still single back then. So anyway, so that, 
for me was sort of the first very clear, meaningful coincidence that day. You know, I had to put on heavy, they gave us, you know, heavy winter parkas and I wore my heavy snow boots, et cetera, to go out in the cold weather because it was the middle of winter. So uh, I went out in the plane and I was uh, tending the patient, you know, other people had loaded her on the plane, but I obviously had to be into uh, doing the Ambu bag because she was intubated. The plane took off and, um, and we flew into a bad storm, uh, a blizzard of some sort of winter storm. And there was really, really high turbulence and the plane was shaking. And then but I wasn't really looking outside. I mean, I would glance every now and then, but because I was really focusing on looking after the patient who was critically ill. But all of a sudden I could hear, because it was a twin propeller plane. And if you've ever been on a propeller plane, you know, the engines are really loud and you can hear them, right? And I was only like 10 feet away from each propeller. That's how small the plane was. So I could hear a change in the sound that all of a sudden, the, the one propeller, I believe it was the one on the right, started sputtering to a stop. And I looked out the window and I could see the propeller slowing down. And I mean, you know, you don't have to be an MD to realize this is not good. You know, and so I shouted up to the pilot, what's going on? What's happening? And he ignored me, but he was like pushing levers and pulling stuff. And it was obvious that he was trying to restart the engine, right? And he did manage to get it restarted. And then I sort of Okay, sigh to sigh of relief. <laughs> and then I went back to looking after that patient. And um, then all the, uh, a few minutes later, I again hear a change in the sound of the engines. And this time it's the left engine, it's the opposite engine that it now is, is sputtering to a stop. And I looked up and I noticed that the pilot had lowered our altitude. So we weren't flying so high anymore. We were much lower over the trees, but, um, uh, I just noticed that, which later I found out he did that on purpose in case, you know, something went wrong. Um, and I hollered up to the patient, to the pilot again, what's going on, what's going on. And he's, you know, pulling levers and doing this and doing that again, trying to start the engine. And then I hear and see that the original one that had stopped now was also sputtering to a stop. So that meant we had no engines. And the plane started going down really rapidly towards the ground, started crashing. And my immediate reaction was uh, like a reflex, intense fear and panic. And it was, I remember the thought, it just sort of jumped out of my soul. Oh God, help, I'm going to die. And Interestingly enough, it was right after that thought leapt out of my heart is when what I now know was a near-death experience, when my experience began. So this was before the plane had even crashed. And what happened was all of a sudden, it was like I could feel a force field of peace descending on me. And it was literally like it was pushing down all of my fear. And I felt incredibly peaceful, very, very calm. My fear had gone. And then I heard an inner voice. Now, I had never heard inner voices before this event. This was the very first time I'd ever heard an inner voice. Except maybe here, eat some more cookies. <laughs> but that didn't seem like a voice. That, that was like a thought. Okay, that came through like a thought, whereas this one, like I was literally hearing a voice and it sounded like a masculine voice. And I heard the voice and it said, be still and know that I am God. I am with you now and always. And with those words came this profound feeling like a, that just permeated my soul of that everything was right with the universe, that there was absolutely nothing to be afraid. Now, I was still fully conscious, fully alert. The plane had not crashed yet. We were descending with horrible turbulence. If you wonder what it's like to be in a plane crash, well, there's bad turbulence. You won't miss it. So we were descending towards the ground. What I later found out is that the pilot 
had um, purposely been flying low uh, in case there was a, a mishap and he had pulled his wheels up and he was trying to do a guided belly landing basically on the surface of a frozen lake. And really heroically, he did sort of managed to do that to get us down uh, to avoid crashing into the trees because it's heavily forested up there but with lots of lakes too so he gotten us over a lake and and avoided the trees and he was trying to do a safe belly landing but the problem was when the plane skidded to a stop the weight of the plane quickly broke the ice the ice was too thin the plane nose dived and then it sunk into very deep water so I had to get out of the plane really, really quickly while the plane was sinking. And so I managed to just sort of, with the pilot's help, get the co-pilot's door open. I climbed out. I was already up to my thighs in ice cold lake water standing on the wing that was underneath the co-pilot's door. And I was trying to pull the patient's stretcher. I was trying to get her floating on her stretcher to come out of the co-pilot's door. And then suddenly the pilot shouts out, get away from the plane, it's going down. And, and I'm, I, I reached in and I got the nurse and I pulled her out because she was trying to push the stretcher from behind. So then the two of us were on the wing and we were trying to pull the patient's stretcher out while the plane nosedived, but we were unable to. And the plane did this suddenly just did this nosedive and down into very deep water. So unfortunately, we lost the patient. She went down with the plane. But the nurse, the pilot and I were now in open frigid water and the place that we had crashed we later found out is called devil's gap that's devil's, actually what, yeah that's what coincidence gap. right there i mean coincidence and devil's it's gap. devil's yeah. gap on lake of the woods close to kenora and it's called devil's gap because it has a really, really strong current there, which makes the water very treacherous in the summer and in the winter. And in the winter, the ice never freezes there. So of all the places for us to, to crash, if we'd been somewhere else, the ice was thick, we might've been fine, but no, we crashed right at the edge of Devil's Gap where the ice was thin, plain sunk. And in order to get to the closest land, we would have to swim from where we were across the Devil's Gap. So uh, 200 yards of open water uh, with a fast moving current uh, in a winter storm, uh, 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 in heavy winter clothes in, in order water. to get to the closest, ice, yeah. I'd be, let's pause for a commercial break here for a minute. I mean, there are the three of you in the currents of Devil's Gap 200 yards away from where you need to get to, but you have to swim through a heavy current to get to any place. That in winter clothes. In winter clothes, in icy, icy water, uh, which just in heavy winter clothes, but I don't know how you're mo moving that. So give us give us a little bit who are, are a little more uh, south of you, how far north in Canada this was. Okay, think Minnesota. All right. think, think the north end of Minnesota. That's approximately where we are. We're across the lake from the north end of Minnesota. All right. So it wasn't way, way up there in the north, okay? no. but it was still cold enough. Yeah. <laughs> think of northern Minnesota in the winter. That's pretty darn cold. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so there I was, the pilot, the three of us were in the water. The pilot started shouting out, try to get on the ice, try to get out on the ice. Because if we looked away from land out towards the lake, you could see some ice that way, but we didn't know how thick that ice was. Yeah. And, and again, I heard a voice in my mind and it said, swim to shore. And I remember this so clearly that, um, you know, I, I wasn't used to, I now call it higher guidance, but I wasn't used to it back then. So I, in fact, argued with, <laughs> I remember in my mind thinking, I'm not going to swim to shore. You know, I took lifeguarding and they tell you in a boating accident not to swim to shore, that you're going to drown on the way to shore, that you're supposed to stay where you are. So 
uh, I literally mentally argued with my inner guidance, uh, which was a learning lesson for me. Anyway, I tried to get on the ice. I swam towards the ice. And you have to realize when you're wearing heavy winter clothes, like a heavy parka and snow boots, they're like lead weights pulling me down into the water. So it was a lot of effort to even get over to the ice to try and get on. And another meaningful coincidence, I was an extremely strong swimmer at that point. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh-huh. That not I was I used to do swimming laps, front crawl is my favorite form of exercise. I was certified as a lifeguard and a swim instructor since I was a teenager. So, I was a first a very very strong swimmer. Again, another meaningful coincidence you that bet. kept me you kept me alive in this crash. Anyway, right. as as I tried to get on the ice, every time I got my arms on the ice, the ice would break just from the weight of my arms. And there was just no way that I could crawl on. And I was getting more tired and more tired with the effort and the kicking of trying to get on the ice. And the voice repeated, swim to shore. So the, the third time the voice repeated, swim to shore, I finally surrendered to it and started swimming to shore. Um, now I hope I would realize when I get that kind of guidance to listen the first time rather than having to wait till the third time. So I turned and I started swimming to shore. Now it was a very long and a very difficult swim. And somewhere in the process of swimming to shore, I started going under, you know, that just out of exhaustion, I would go under and my my throat would fill with water and I, I would just use all my strength and all my willpower and all my adrenaline to try and claw my way up to the surface again to get my mouth above water and, you know, try and breathe some air in and then to continue swimming to shore. So it was a very, very difficult swim. Where were the pilot and the nurse at this time? At this time, they were still trying to get on the ice all unsuccessfully. Right. All right. And then partway in swimming to shore is when, you know, now I can use the vocabulary, my near death experience deepened, but I'll describe to you what I, what I experienced. So I'm partway to swimming to shore. And all of a sudden I hear, hear this loud inner sort of whooshing or noisy uh, roaring sound, like, like the roar of a waterfalls. And I feel my point of perception just rise up above my body. And suddenly, I mean, my body's still alive, my body's still swimming. I'm finding most of my consciousness about 20 or 30 feet above my body. But it was more complicated than that. Because um, now with split screen TVs and zoom, people can get it. It was like there was the largest part of my consciousness, which is like the big image on the screen was up above my body but there was still a small part of my consciousness, like a, a small screen in the corner of the, the, the big screen that was still in my body. So actually my consciousness was two places at the same time. It seems inexplicable, but that is what I was experiencing. But most of my consciousness now was up above my body. And then the bulk of my consciousness rose higher. And I went into this place, state, it's hard to use the words, what I experienced was profound, unconditional, powerful love in while I was also experiencing beautiful white light. Many people talk about it as a white light realm. And I purposefully said that last because the most powerful part of it for me was not the light, it was the love. The, the powerful, unconditional love that I was feeling. And yes, it was in a space that was filled with light. And the best that I have been able to find that somewhat is similar to what I experienced in this light-filled, love-filled realm is when you're in a plane that's rising and just at the top of the clouds before it's going to go into the sunlight above the clouds, where it's all sparkly and bright and diffused white light around you. That's what it was like when I was in the white light realm. It was, it was diffused, it was beautiful. Um, and, but the most powerful part was what I was feeling. I felt 
this profound unconditional love. And I was home, that all was right with the universe, that all was perfect. And for an instant, I saw a face of light and then it sort of disappeared into the periphery, the cloud-like periphery. And I just somehow knew things when I was in this realm of light, not because they were spoken to me or told to me by somebody or something. I just somehow knew. It's like, I, I knew. I knew that what I was experiencing was the profound, unconditional love of the higher power or what I had been taught in my religion of childhood to call God. And what I was experiencing God to be was not anything like what I'd been taught. <laughs> it was not an old man with a long white beard sitting on a throne judging you. Have you been good? Have you been bad? That was not what I was experiencing God or the higher power to be. What I was experiencing was that God or the higher power is like a force, like a, a, a infinitely vast and infinitely intelligent and infinitely loving force that interpenetrates all of creation and non-creation, past, present, future, everything. It's like the substance, the stuff that, that, that all of us are interpenetrated with. And I knew also without being told, I just somehow knew that me, what I think of as I, would live on whether that physical body that was struggling to swim to shore survived or not. I, I, it, it was to fear death was um, impossible <laughs> in this state because I already knew, oh, this is great. This is home. And this is where I stay if, if that body doesn't make it to shore. Anyway, my body continued. I stayed, you know, for timeless time in this state of love and uh, mystical communion is the best I can describe it. And my body below was struggling to swim to shore. So it looked like my body was not going to be able to make it to shore because I was just, my body was just too physically exhausted. And by this time I was also profoundly hypothermic. And I remember that I was looking through my physical eyes, you know, it was as if my focus had shifted, the two screens had shifted for an instant. And now the big screen was looking through my physical eyes of my body. And I saw that I was about 20 feet from shore and the strong current was carrying me to the right. And um, I knew I couldn't make it. And, and I remember thinking, oh, okay, guess I'm going to die. And, and I surrendered, basically surrendered, like, to go under for the third time. And, and I remember thinking, gee, you really do drown the third time. The third time you go down. I mean, it's amazing what your brain will think in these situations. But just then, as I looked out of my physical eyes, I could see that the current was carrying me to the right. And by meaningful coincidence, <laughs> a tall pine tree had fallen down, uh, had fallen some time ago, I guess, into the water from the shore of the island and was sticking out into the water. And the current was actually carrying me towards this pine tree. So all that I had to do was swim one more stroke and the current would carry me and that's what happened. And my hand hit that pine tree. And I remember clearly when I touched the tree, I didn't feel anything. My hand was so frozen. And I remember looking at my hand and thinking, you know, your intellectual mind still going, that, that's odd. My hand is bright red. I think it should be white when I'm frozen. <laughs> But later I found out in advanced stages of hypothermia, you lose the ability to vasoconstrict and then you vasodilate. And actually you're very close to death when that happens with hypothermia. Anyway, I managed to pull myself along this tree and climb over some ice piles that were on the shore and get onto the shore. And then I turned around and started shouting out to the pilot and to the nurse, swim to shore, swim to shore. You can do it. I did it. And then I um, sort of 
in, uh, instinctively got into the crouch position with my uh, fingers tucked into my armpits because I was profoundly hypothermic at that time and um, waited. Now, now comes a whole series of coincidences. Yeah, that's what I, that's, that's what I was, that's what I was, how does, how does our heroine get, end up frozen on an island, hypothermic, and there across Devil's Gap is the nurse and the pilot, and then the rest of the story is somehow you're you're saved all three of you and how did that happen becomes a major question well so we'll start with that the pilot he managed to swim to shore after i started shouting out he followed me so he made it to shore too uh, he was also a very strong swimmer the nurse man who could not swim managed to find a piece of ice that had some wood frozen in it. So it was enough to keep her afloat, you know, at least with her mouth above the water. And she literally froze onto that like a human icicle. And that's what she was like when the, the, the rescue helicopter came. So let me tell you all the coincidences that led to the rescue. Yes. So when we crashed, when we, when we were actually in distress before we lost the second, um, engine. I now know because I've spoken to the pilot on numerous occasions, the pilot, of, we're still in contact, the pilot of the plane. We actually had a reunion, a plane crash reunion online this year, which is <laughs> wonderful. Anyway, um, he had been radioing to the ground, you know, to, to the closest airport, which was Kenora Airport, that we were having engine trouble and he need, you know, we needed to make an emergency landing. And so they were trying to radio him, you know, how to get to a closest uh, airstrip or something where he could land. But of course, naturally, we never made it to that airstrip. So at least somebody knew that we were having trouble. So that was step number one. Then, then when we actually crashed okay and and the plane as the plane was sinking the pilot stood up on the wing on his side by the pilot store and he radioed out a mayday 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 you know plane down or whatever it is that they say when they radio out a mayday now because where we crashed was in very hilly terrain you know that that the around us the islands had hills and they were all forested and um the heavy storm the only way somebody really could have picked up the mayday is if there was an airplane flying almost directly overhead. And there was. So by coincidence, by meaningful coincidence, there was a regularly scheduled Air Canada flight from Edmonton, I believe it was to Toronto, that was flying very, very high overhead. And they picked up the Mayday message and they knew almost exactly where we were. So they were able to radio down to the ground. So the Kenora Airport got the message that, oh, this is approximately here, there is the plane that's down. So how's that for number one in a series of meaningful coincidences? There's more. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so. Okay, so they know where we are, but how approximately where we are and that we have crashed, but how are they going to get to us? We swam to an island, right? It was not accessible by skidoo, which is what a lot of people use in the winter because there was open water next to the island. It was not accessible by boat because, you know, there's ice before you get to the water. It's not accessible by road because there were no roads to the island. So the only vehicle that could possibly have rescued us was a helicopter. Helicopter, yeah. And normally there are no helicopters anywhere in this area. So how could we be rescued? Well, by meaningful coincidence, <laughs> on that particular day, there was an empty helicopter being ferried from Winnipeg to Valdor, Quebec, and it ran into the same snowstorm that we did. So it decided to land until the storm had passed by coincidence at what's called the Ministry of Natural Resources base, five miles from where we crashed. <laughs> 
and it had just landed. Yep. It had just landed and uh, he had was starting the helicopter pilot said he was starting to, you know, like cover up the propellers and all the things he does. He, he, he went inside the base and met the pilot who was in the base who had, who he'd never met before. He still had the radio on, you know, the aircraft radio or whatever frequency they have on at the base. So they heard the message from Kenora airport. We just got a mayday that there's a plane down in such and such a location. Is there anybody nearby who could look for them? And these two fellows, their name is Bob Grant and Brian Clegg. They'd never met each other, two pilots. They didn't even think. They both went into the helicopter and they immediately went to where the plane was reported to go down and they started looking for us. Now, they didn't know that we crashed and sank into the only piece of open water for hundreds of miles. They were looking for wreckage. They were looking for wreckage in trees or wreckage in the ice because everything else is frozen solid except Devil's Cap at this time of year. So their first flyby, they didn't even see us. You know, like they, they, they just kept on searching. You have to remember, this is in a, a storm with blowing snow and they're looking for wreckage. They didn't see any wreckage. They didn't see us huddled under the trees in this, this fully forested island or the nurse like an icicle in this, this open water. And then again, by coincidence, if you want to call it that, some floatable item, we don't know what it was, came out of the sunken plane and floated to the surface. It might have been, I don't know, a seat cushion or something that floats anyway, was on Devil's Gap. And so when they couldn't find us, they said, well, there was something on the water in Devil's Gap. Could they possibly have gone down and like, in the one place where there's open water. So they, they came back. And again, the coincidence of whatever that was that floated to the surface, they came back closer. And when they came back for a closer look is when they, and they came back real low because of the visibility is when they saw the um, nurse frozen, holding on to a piece of ice. And at first they thought she was the only survivor. They realized the plane had gone down. So they, um, very, very heroically uh, tried to pull her into the helicopter, but she kept on slipping because she was like coated with ice. They finally had to like, uh, Bob Grant went out and he straddled the, the underneath skid of the helicopter. He was up to his hips in water to hold on to her. And they dragged her body along the ice until they got to a place where the ice was strong enough to even support her weight. Then Bob managed to sort of wedge her into the co-pilot seat but then he couldn't get in the helicopter and so how they actually flew with her to the closest hospital which was Kenora hospital was that Bob was standing outside the helicopter on the strut sort of wedging the door shut to keep the nurse's body in there while Brian flew the helicopter to Kenora hospital I mean really really heroic rescue um, so they brought her there and then the two of them said, well, let's go back and see if there's anybody else. And I have to tell you that when uh, the pilot, whose name was Jerry Krushensky and I, who were waiting on shore, freezing to death, uh, when they left, when, when the two left, when, when we saw the helicopter, we were waving and waving and shouting and shouting, but actually the helicopter was facing away from us. And, and obviously the helicopter pilots were focused on trying to rescue the nurse. They were pulling out of the water. It seemed they had not seen us. So we didn't know if they'd come back. And it was a really, really long, whatever period of time it was until they came back. I really didn't know if they would be coming back to look for us. But they had the thought, thank goodness, well, let's go back and see just in case there are any other survivors that we didn't see in the water. So first they looked in the water but then they saw us on shore. So here comes another interesting coincidence. <laughs> so they tried to come to shore, but of course there's nowhere they can land. There's open water next to shore and the shore is forested. So how were they gonna, I mean, we weren't gonna swim out to the helicopter, <laughs> not capable. So how were we gonna get into the helicopter? Well, again, by coincidence, a little bit up, 
uh, to the right of where I was, there was an inlet in, in the, a small inlet in the island. And so the current, it went over the mouth of the inlet so that in the inlet itself, ice had formed. And so the helicopter found that coincidental little inlet. They brought the helicopter over there. The ice, it was such a small inlet that the bottom struts, they were landing on the ice, but this helicopter had also had a prop at the back as well as one on top. The prop on the back was over open water. <laughs> like this was like a made in heaven fit for the helicopter. It just fit on this piece of ice. And um, so then they motioned us, they gestured us to, to walk over to the helicopter. I was so hypothermic and I don't know, semi-conscious, elapsing in and out of consciousness at that point, there was no way I could walk that distance to the helicopter. So Bob Grant, again, the one that could not swim, uh, he, one of the pilots could not swim either. This is Bob Grant. And he got out of the helicopter walked across that ice, not knowing how thick the ice on the inlet was or how deep the water was, walked over the little hill and got me and sort of like slung me and have sort of dragged me, carried me over and brought me into the helicopter. And uh, the pilot was able, uh, uh, Jerry Krushensky was able to um, get into the helicopter. So then they, they uh, had both of us in the helicopter and they brought us to Kenora Hospital. Now, I remember watching from above because once I was in the helicopter, I think I lost consciousness. I, I stopped having awareness of my body and it was just that I was watching my body. And um, I watched from above as they landed on the driveway of the hospital and the emergency room staff, they, they uh, wheeled out the stretchers, you know, and they put us each on a stretcher and, and put us into the emergency department. And I remember watching from above as a nurse was trying to take my temperature and she was using a standard mercury thermometer. And I remember she was puzzled. She was looking at it like, why was she not getting a temperature reading on my body? Well, I was below, my body temperature was below the bottom reading on a standard mercury thermometer, which was why she was not getting a temperature reading. And I could feel my consciousness drifting further and further away from my body. I knew I was dying. That was okay. I mean, I was in the light. I knew I was dying. And here's another one that you could call it a meaningful coincidence, but I, I don't know what we're going to call it. All of a sudden, I hear a voice say, boy, could I use a hot bath? And I remember being very surprised to discover that those words came out of my mouth, my physical body's mouth, because I'd not been thinking that I'd not been planning to say it. I don't know if my guardian angels spoke through my mouth or what happened. But here's your meaningful coincidence. That's exactly what we needed. We needed to be submerged in hot water. We needed to be reheated. They didn't realize how hypothermic and close to death I was. But when those words came out of my mouth, the nurses said to one another, I remember watching from above, hey, maybe that would help her. Maybe we should take her down to the physiotherapy and put her in the hot whirlpool bath. And so they did. They wheeled me and the pilot and the nurse down to the physiotherapy department, finally took off my ice encrusted clothes put me, I can only talk about my own experience, put me in the hot water. And it was there as my body rewarmed that I felt my consciousness re-enter my body. And what that experience was like, it was like whoosh, how they depict a genie being sucked into a bottle. I felt like I'd been in this expansive, wonderful place above and suddenly whoosh, by some other force sucked me into the small confines of my body. And then I was back. And Yvonne, we're back now too, um, because we're going to stop right there as the genie gets put back into the bottle. Uh, what a story. Um, and I'm so glad we're able to, um, to do the, the coincidences that I hadn't heard when I previously watched what you were doing. That was, uh, I mean, my, my favorite one in all of that, and you may have a favorite, is the is the Air Canada plane flying over just at the right time to get at the only spot the plane could be to hear the Mayday call. Uh, and then I like the other one with the helicopter being able to land only on a 
piece of ice big enough for that helicopter to land in a place where there was no ice because it was Devil's Gap. But there, there were more of them, and I'm not going to try to repeat them, and uh, our audience can look at them. But th those are the two that stand out to me, uh, besides being a good swimmer and getting over there and, and hearing about your near-death experiences. But I think what I want to lead into here is what are transformative spiritual experiences? spiritually transformative yeah, spiritually transformative experience. experiences yeah i coined that phrase back in um 1994 uh, in one of my earlier books and also uh in an article that i wrote for the journal of near-death studies and i coined that phrase because um i felt it was really important both for medicine and for the general public to have a non-pathological word to describe some of the spiritual and paranormal experiences that were happening to people. Because back when this happened to me in, in, in 1979, you know, I just completed my medical training. There was nothing in medicine that would um, embrace the type of experience I had as real. That when I spoke with all of my medical doctor friends after it happened, I mean, I, I, I wanted to tell people, and have you ever heard of anything like this? And, and what's it called? I mean, I didn't even have a word to describe my experience. And everybody knew me. They knew I wasn't crazy. Uh, but they all, all my medical colleagues said it was a hallucination. You know, that it was a hallucination brought on by a low blood sugar, hallucination brought on by an electrolyte imbalance, hallucination brought on by the cold. And like all of that was like, uh, I don't think so. It started as the plane was going down. And the other thing is, I've seen many people hallucinating. They don't become changed and spiritually transformed afterwards. This experience changed me in a positive way, in a spiritual way, I lost my fear of death because I knew we live on after we die. I became much more spiritual, not because I was taught in my religion of childhood to be religious or spiritual, but because I knew that we were truly spiritual beings. And that what I'd been taught in the books when I was younger, that there is a God a higher power, maybe the way I was taught the higher power looked was not exactly accurate, but the higher power is real and exists and loves us all. I became much more tolerant of people with diverse religious viewpoints and traditions because I realized we're all trying to understand the same one truth. I became, I had a psychic awakening shortly afterwards, a few weeks afterwards, I was driving to visit a friend and I uh, was stopped at a red light. And all of a sudden, I got a clear visual image in my mind's eye of my friend's brain covered in pus. And as a medical doctor, the symbology was crystal clear. I knew it meant meningitis. And somehow I also knew it was my friend's brain. And anyway, to make a long story short, yes, later on that day, she was taken to the eMERGE and diagnosed with acute meningitis. So that was my first of many clairvoyant experiences. And I started having clairaudient experiences, clairsentient experiences. And for years, when I tried to understand what happened to me in the plane crash, I was told it was not a near-death experience because I'd not been dead. Well, okay. And because I hadn't seen a tunnel. Well, okay. So I said, well, if it's not a near-death experience, what is it? And the best word I could find was a mystical experience. So for many years, for almost 10 years, I called it my mystical experience that happened in the plane crash. So here's me, a young doctor. I'd had an out-of-body experience. I'd had a mystical experience. Now I was having all sorts of psychic experiences. Prior to this, we don't have time, but a few years earlier when I was meditating, I had what I now know is a kundalini awakening. So I'm having all of these experiences myself. And I know I'm not crazy. I mean, I'm running a medical practice. I'm teaching at the University of Toronto, but I'm keeping all of this in the closet. It's all sort of secret <laughs> that, that, that these things are happening to me. But at the same time, more and more patients started coming to see me in my practice and telling me their stories. By coincidence. That, 
by coincidence. Yeah, That's I, right. I mean, there's there's a there's a way to explain that uh, somehow people are picking up through the web of information that we are not allowed to think about that you be, have become somewhat of a beginning expert in the subject. Exactly, and 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 I I sensed it as someone that they felt safe to talk to, an MD they felt safe to talk to, who would not immediately judge it as a hallucination or sign of mental illness. Yeah. And, and the stories I heard from people were heartbreaking. I was really, really um, disturbed that how people were being pathologized, sometimes put in psychiatric wards, sometimes by their churches being told it's work of the devil, being estranged by their family, that, you know, why are they obsessed with this? And it really became clear to me that, that we needed to have a greater understanding, meaning the medical profession, society in general, of spiritual experiences because they are happening to people. And they are not a sign of mental illness. And we are actually causing harm by labeling them as mental illness. And so that's what propelled me to come up with this term spiritually transformative experiences as an umbrella term for the wide range of spiritual and paranormal experiences that people are having today that are not signs of mental illness that they're so, actually uh, part of a spiritual awakening process and expansion of consciousness that's happening on the planet so important so important yvonne and in again in the sub group of those are people having lots of meaningful coincidences and exactly go and going to psychiatrists or going to mental health people and you got to take a pill is the usual response to that and i'm trying to do that at the coincidence level with the psychiatrists and mental health by talking to people who use meaningful coincidences during psychotherapy, as well as people who have been overwhelmed by them. So this is again, a kind of base place where lots of people are experiencing meaningful coincidences head in the same direction that you are, which is to say, Hey, this stuff's not crazy. This can be very useful to people. Mm -hmm. And healing and helpful. And, um, so it's it's pathologizing, you know, for, for thousands of years, mystics have been persecuted, you know, burned on the stake, oh, crucified, yeah. you know, all sorts of uh, things have happened. And in our society, it's being labeled as crazy. <laughs> so uh, so that became, you know, I, I had a, a very strong uh, in my book. Uh, we haven't mentioned my book, Touched by the Light, which I uh, released in 2019, where I describe many of my experiences because I've had five near-death experiences. Let's say that um, again. Touched by the Light. Touched by the Light. 2019, uh, Yvonne 2019. Kaysen. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll hear more stories that are, are I don't know how like them. The first one is, but it's pretty incredible. This first one, and I'm, I bet you the other ones are really amazing too. Each, so each one is different, but each one is complementary. Um, complementary sort of to the other ones, you mean? To, yeah, that's right. You know, it's like I look at it that that the nature of the universe is so vast, and when you have you know mystical experiences or near death experience or other sorts of STEs, it's like you're getting a a bigger glimpse. Than what we normally have in our in our normal worldview, yeah. but those bigger glimpses, there's still much more to be seen. <laughs> so, so the glimpses are cumulatively additive. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's that's wonderfully said. Again, again, touched by the light and uh, to 2019. You can probably get it on Amazon uh, if you if you were looking. If, you got to be impressed with these stories. Uh, I am, and so yeah. let's let's move on for the for the last part of our. Our, our interview, our discussion here uh, to um, your organization. Yes. And, and you were part of uh, uh, International Association of Near-Death Experiences I, for I quite was, a long time. I, uh, not for a long time. Oh. I, was, uh, I was elected president of uh, IANS in 2019. I was invited to be on the board of, of directors in 2018, and then I was elected president. Um, but I stepped down from that early in 2020 because... Um, my passion, as I have said, uh, since 
going back to the seventies has been the whole range of spiritually transformative experiences. And how I understand it is that near death experiences are one type of spiritually transformative experience. And what felt right for my soul was I felt the need. In fact, I had a strong calling or what we sometimes call a download where I felt guidance from spirit that I was being called to start a new organization. And I was even given the name of the organization. This happened in July of um, 2019. I remember it clearly. I was given the name of the organization, Spiritual Awakenings International. And Finesse. Spiritual Awakenings International with an S. That's right. And I didn't know how I would do it or when I would do it. But all I knew is that this resonated with my soul, that this was a fit for me, that just looking at near-death experiences was too narrow a focus. And so it all came together in 2020 with a whole series of coincidences, which could be a whole other TV show, a whole other episode. But I happened to meet by coincidence, Robert Baer, who was nominated as vice president. We didn't know each other before. Vice president of Alliance. That's right. That's how we met each other. Again, International Association for for Near-Death Experience. I was nominated for president. And so I said, well, let's see if we could run as a slate because there were other candidates. And once we started talking, it was actually Robert who got the download first. He says, you know, Yvonne, I'm just getting this strong intuition that we're meant to start another organization looking at all of STEs or spiritually transformative experiences. And I, of course, said, well, I'll have to meditate on that. And then when I meditated on it, bang, I got my download. I said, yep, that's right. That, that, you know, we'll do our best for IANS while we're president and vice president, but sometime in the future, we both felt really strongly called that we were to found another organization. Well, as it turned out, by coincidence, again, we both were clear by March of 2020 that we wished to step down. We were elected as president and vice president of IANS. We stepped down very cordially, wish them well, but we feel called to start this new organization. So, Together in June of 2020, we launched Spiritual Awakenings International as a nonprofit global network. We're uh, incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit charity in the United States. And our mission, our vision is global, international because we know that spiritual awakenings is a human phenomenon. It's happening to people all over the world. And we're focusing on all types of spiritually transformative experiences, all types. And um, our goal is to raise awareness of all these types of STEs, spiritually transformative experiences. Secondly, to facilitate networking, because so many people or groups are sort of isolated out there, and they don't realize that by invisible fingers or meaningful coincidences. There are many groups all over the world and we actually are a network. And if we can connect with each other, we can strengthen each other and form a stronger mesh that is helping to raise awareness, raise consciousness on the planet. If you look at the mission statement of the Coincidence Project, it is just that, to connect with people like you and your organization so there must be other people wanting to do the same thing and i'm glad you're such a hub in 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 this in this idea we can be one of the spokes for what you're talking about because absolutely and you know our other the third prong of our mission is sharing experience oh yeah so this is a safe place where experiencers can share their experiences you know like it's a safe harbor you're safe here you're among other experiencers so a safe place to share and also where researchers can share so um those are these these are the same elements of the mission statement of the coincidence project to encourage people to tell each other coincidence stories we have a meeting on saturdays once a month where called the coincidence cafe where you can get a you can get some serendipity or some synchronicity (laughs) 
So people tell their stories and yeah. provide, we provide the same kind of idea in a smaller way than you are, but with the same idea to tell these stories. And I want to get to a place where we can get, get a little cash and start doing some research on coincidence stories because mm-hmm. I want uh, to, use, uh, to use computers, to, to use uh, um, uh, uh, good, good programming uh, to be able to figure out the patterns in coincidence stories because there are basic patterns that we can't whether we can't find that uh, good programming can look for so awesome so i want to tell people who are listening i think that sounds awesome i think i really uh we'll see how that unfolds Uh, and then we'd be interested in hearing your research results in spiritual awakenings international but i want to tell people what we have going on at spiritual awakenings international we have a great website with a lot of information about all different types of spiritually transformative experiences And for a lot of people, just even getting an accurate name for your type of experience is profoundly healing. And my book tries to do that for meaningful coincidence, a subset of what you're talking about. That's right. I have plenty of labels so that people can identify them. And also the ways in which people tend to focus more on one kind of coincidence than the other. Like mm-hmm. some people like them interpersonally, some people like them for scientific investigation. So we have labels for those type subsets of people. Labels, as you know, as a doctor, are very important. Yes. And in, in my books, I give the labels for the different types of spiritually yes. transformative experiences, yes. Yes. like all the different types of mystical experiences, yes. all the different types of psychic, intuitive and out of body experiences, so, Kundalini and spiritual energy awakening, inspired creativity. So I've got the near death experiences after death communication. So those definitions are in my book, Touched by the Light, but they're excellent. also... Uh, most of them are on my Spiritual Awakenings International website. So a lot of people tell me, wow, just reading your website, I suddenly realized I'm a multiple STE experiencer. I didn't even know there was a name for that type of experience. That is so cool. So cool. And then we have events. So uh, we have monthly events. We have a featured speaker event, always the third Saturday of the month. We have... um, our SAI experiencers sharing circles the first Saturday of each month. Uh, This is all online and it's all free. We've also now started in Spanish. The second Saturday, we have speaker events and we have sharing circles in Spanish. And the big news is we're going to have an online conference Saturday, June 11th and Sunday, June 12th. We've got 30 outstanding speakers from 12 countries around the world. We are really proud to be so international. We have subscribers, although the United States and Canada are our top subscribers for Spiritual Awakenings International. We have subscribers from 60 five countries around the world. And I'm very proud that our most recent country that has been added to our list of subscribers is the Ukraine. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Very, very timely. So people out there are reaching out too. So I invite everybody. There are no atheists in foxholes. I mean, that's an old, (laughs) that's an old story. I mean, it makes Mm -hmm. you have to get more out there. I thought, isn't that interesting? That is our most recent country. It is necessary too. That's another meaningful coincidence. It is. It it is. And we've got, and it is very meaningful. Uh, Mm -hmm. What we have to do and you are leading a charge that's wonderful, is bring what we might call a new religion to people in in the world. The earth community needs to understand we're all in this together and that we're all part of the same thing and that we're all connected in ways that we don't understand and don't believe and that there's lots of love and help around us, but we have to tune into it. Mm-hmm. So we're coming, we're coming to the, we're coming to the end of our, our time today, Yvonne. And so let if- me just say one more thing, if I may. So 
go to our website, which is spiritualawakeningsinternational.org. And you can find out about the conference and all of our events and all of those definitions. And also we have a Spiritual Awakenings International YouTube channel that you can go to and you can watch videos of some of our past speakers and last year's conference. So I invite people to do that if they'd like to learn more. Well, thank you. I mean, go to your go to her website, go to Spiritual Awakenings uh, a website. International. International. <laughs> Go to her, go to that website. You'll see a lot of stuff. I'm going to go there and I'm going to see about applying for having the Coincidence Project be an affiliated the network, affiliate of your network because we love it. it. It's, it's, uh, it, there's such a nice fit here. So it as is. we end, I'd want to ask you to tell us yet another personal story about yourself, something it's a little more you. I mean, these are dramatic stories that, that you've told us, particularly the ice, the icebreaker one, but and devil's gap one. But who is Yvonne Kaysen? Give us a little sense of who you are from a personal perspective. Well, let me see. I'm a very proud grandmother. <laughs> My first and only grandson was born approximately one year ago. And uh, I love being a hands-on grandmother. So he is my pride and joy. But my spiritual work, uh, my volunteer work is um, uh, my other big joy. I absolutely love uh, being the president of Spirits Awakenings International. I also have a local group here in Toronto that I lead called Toronto Awakening Sharing Group. Um, so now that I'm, re- I'm retired from medical practice, uh, we didn't have time to say that my last near-death experience in 2003 was because I had a serious uh, accident with a traumatic brain injury. And that traumatic brain injury disabled me for 12 years. And then I experienced a miracle. I wouldn't, well, I it might be a meaningful coincidence in that since I was disabled, I focused very much on my meditation practice and they now realize have discovered medical science that meditation is a very strong stimulus to brain neuroplasticity. <laughs> so I was doing lots and lots of meditation and deep in meditation uh, in February of 2016, I experienced a miracle where I had an eruption of light in the center of my brain and my brain was healed. And since that time, I've started writing books again. I wrote that book, Touched by the Light, was the first book I wrote after my brain healing. Um, I've written another one. I have two more that are cooking in the fryer. <laughs> I started volunteering, public speaking, serving on boards. That's all been uh, since my brain healing in 2016. I I call myself Yvonne version 2.0 that I was offline for refurbishment for 12 years. And then the good Lord brought me back by meaningful coincidence uh, to to, uh, continue on. And I'm really, really delighted and and grateful to have had that profound healing experience. And I'm delighted to currently be the president of Spiritual Awakenings International. Yvonne, you are an amazing bundle of smart, intelligent energy. Uh, with some wonderful experiences to draw on. You are you are, are such an example of spiritually transformative experiences yourself. You have lived them. You get to talk about them because you've lived them. You've had them. You are having them. And you know of what you speak from your experience. And it's a pleasure to get to know you. And you will be hearing from me. So thank you for being with me today, Yvonne. And thanks for having me on your show, Bernie. This cycle's fear